This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, as we continue our coverage of the 2021 primary election, we turn to Snohomish County to speak with two candidates running for Snohomish County Council. Brandy Donaghy is running in District 5, and Nicole Negaqui is running to represent District 1. And we're going to start with our friend Brandy Donaghy. And if you know that name, it is because she is one of the co-founders and leaders of Indivisible Plus Washington. She is also a Navy veteran and educator and has been actively serving communities in Snohomish County for many, many years. It is so exciting to have you on the show, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty well myself, and I will just say that uh, I love the fact that there are so many individuals who are running for office right now. You know, they always said that's the most impactful thing that we can do. I wonder, you know, during your years of, of leading an indivisible group, how did that work factor into your decision to take the plunge and run for office? Well, you know, in, in the very beginning, we were talking about, hey, if you want to have a part, be part of the po- process, if you want to really understand what's going on within politics, you become a PCO. The so PCO is the lowest elected position in the Democratic Party, but it allows you to get a real understanding of how the system works. And I couldn't ask somebody else to do it unless I was willing to do it myself. Yeah. And so... We started there. And then it shifts to, you know, if you're going to um, really want to make change in your community, the best way you can do that is to run for office. And again, I certainly can't ask anybody else to do it if I'm not willing to do it myself, if I have the means to do so. And so it just kind of went from, you know, PCO and working inside the party to running for office to work outside the party for the the greater good of the entire community. And that's that's how I got there. I kind of wonder if others did, did a similar thing. Well, I mean, you're walking your talk, and that's probably the most uh, impressive thing uh, about your leadership. And, you know, something else that you mentioned on your website that I wanted listeners to know about is you talk about how your mom also inspired you to serve your community. What if you could talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so my mother's a nurse. Um, that's all she's ever been as, as long as I've, you know, known her. Um, although she could do a whole bunch of things, but she's always been a helper. And so that was something that was ingrained in me when I was a child was that we do what we can to help when we can help. And, you know, that just kind of, again, expands into finding yourself in a position where you can step in and do some greater good. And so you have to step in. It's a responsibility. I think, um, being a public servant is, is a responsibility to me because it is what I've been taught I should be if I want to, you know, continue to create change and help people. Well, again, I'll just say I appreciate uh, everything that you're doing right now. And I appreciate your mom for inspiring you. Moms are the best. Me too. Um, so uh, for people who may not be familiar completely with your very beautiful part of the state, Snohomish County, maybe tell us a little bit about it uh, and also your district, kind of the geography and maybe a little bit of the demographics too. Yeah. Well, so Snohomish County is, um, I, I think it's really interesting because it's it's huge. It's um it is beautiful. It is very diverse in geography. We have urban areas. We have um, suburban, rural spaces, mountains, you know, you name it, we have it. And that is one of the things I think that makes um, the county so lovely. We have um, kind of a interesting spread of um, 
demographics within the county these days because it's one of the fastest growing counties in the in the state. And as it grows, the diversity increases. So when when I say a couple two censuses ago, 2000, we had less than 2% um, people who were black, um, closer to uh, to 10% of people who have a Latinx background or um, Hispanic speaking. Um, and then right around there with people front with Asian backgrounds, but it kind of encompasses all Asian backgrounds. And as time goes on, we're seeing that really start to shift with an increase in the number of people of color in our in our district, which is really, really kind of amazing. But because of all the diversity within the district, we also have all sorts of things going on, which is one of my favorite things about the county is just not only the variety of people, the variety of um, the geography, but also how we are able to, you know, work within that and create so many different things. Well, you know, and on in that vein, talk about leadership a little bit, mm -hmm. because, you know, it is my understanding that politically, you know, certainly as it becomes more diverse, uh, the county is starting to shift purple. Um, and I'm wondering what direction you see things moving in terms of leadership to reflect that. Well, what we see is in a lot of cases, our leadership is still very, very much male, very much white um, and very much from, you know, the, the similar working to middle class backgrounds. And I th think that we really need to be shifting because as the demographic shift, we need to be able to look up and see people who reflect our ourselves in our leadership. Um, particularly as you know we've seen across the country and even across the world issues with um, racial inequity and such. We need to be able to have leaders who have an understanding of where that comes from. And so as we grow, it's imperative that our leadership grows and changes to reflect who we are. Yeah, this gets into what you and I were talking about when we were preparing for this interview about cultural competence, right? Yep. Yeah, um, because we're not all from the same place, right? And we, we see a lot of immigrants in our communities and a lot of people who are not, you know, your typical people who were here before, you know, yeah. since our diversity is increasing. And there's an expectation that people need to go to their government for things they need. They need to ask for the things in the way that the leaders feel is appropriate for them to be asking. They need to be expressing their happiness or their pleasure in the way the leaders feel is appropriate. And none of those things really embrace the differences between us. Um, or recognize that because we come from different places, we all do things different ways. And so it really puts us at a disadvantage and it puts, you know, the county as a whole at a disadvantage because we are losing the input and the impact from so many who have so much to bring us. Well, that's one of the outcomes that I know that you like to focus on. You talked about how your leadership style is very much outcomes first, mm -hmm. and then you work backward towards solutions. So, you know, let's talk about your priorities 
you know, through that lens, one of the things that you talk about as an ideal is what you call community resiliency. Um, and, you know, this is obviously very, very important as we come back from the pandemic. Uh, you say that the county was very poorly prepared to handle the pandemic. So I'll ask you this, in order to get to community resiliency in the corner, the kinds of outcomes ultimately that you want, what needs to be prioritized as the county gets back on its feet? So, I mean, the truth is the county wasn't ready, but nobody was really ready. So I want to make sure that that's clear. But one of the things that I've learned working within emergency preparedness areas is that um, the people who are able to be prepared for an emergency are the people who are um, of means in most cases. Uh, those who live kind of in areas where they are less stable. And by less stable, I'm thinking about, you know, the almost half of Americans who are a couple paychecks away from homelessness, like, and it, which is, you know, a huge, huge portion of our, our um, people. But the people who are the most likely to be impacted for the longest from these disasters are the ones who are least likely to be able to be prepared for numerous reasons, um, delivery systems, uh, finances, all sorts of things that we don't necessarily take into consideration because when we look at a disaster, it's something that happens rarely. So there are always other things that are prioritized. And then we had a pandemic and we weren't ready. We didn't have everything that we needed to even be able to, um, to start to address it, let alone to be able to manage it over this long period of time because a disaster is a, you know something that overwhelms our existing systems. That's the definition of it. So, one of the things that I've always wanted to kind of focus on is making sure that we're getting the right resources in the right areas. And this is something that, you know, long before I ran for office, still something that um, I was working on doing to ensure some community resilience, which basically means that you have some of the resources that you need in order to be able to bend instead of break when something hits you, whether it's a disaster that impacts your area or whether it's a personal emergency that impacts just you uh, or, you know, your neighbors, an apartment fire or something along those lines. And so community resiliency means that we are putting things into place that help prevent having something hit us and having us fall down and not be able to get back up again. It's all about being able to recover, but it goes further than that. It's about creating systems that are, and communities that are self-sufficient um, or more self-sufficient than we are right now that have the, um, you know, the social responsibility to one another, where we can work together for our goal and know who we can go to, where um, we work together to create something that helps prevent some of the other crises that we face every day, like helping people pe keep people in their homes instead of having to address homelessness when it's already at its highest point when people are out of their homes helping people um, access education when they need it so that they can stay employed instead of having to, you know, look for jobs and end up in, in spirals, things well, like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this seems like sort of systemic thinking. Mm -hmm. And it also uh, seems to be uh, addressing this notion that, you know, you, you say that nobody was really prepared for the pandemic, and that is true. But you say on your website that there is a need to simply just recognize the reality of homelessness, as you mm -hmm. were referring to earlier, in Snohomish County. I wonder, is there an unwillingness to even acknowledge the issue under current leadership? 
There are, it, it kind of depends on where you're looking. There is some of an attempt to address it as it's seen now. But the truth is that being homeless doesn't just mean that you're sleeping on the street. It can mean you're in a hotel. It can mean you're couch surfing. You've moved in with um, relatives because you've lost your home. There are all sorts of other things that lead to being technically homeless by not having a permanent residence. And those are the things I'm talking about, recognizing the realities of and yeah. understanding just how many of our community members are actually impacted. And that's step one. Um, another is, you know, looking at our school districts and how many of our students are actually homeless because there's a, a significant percentage when you get down to it. Um, and so what, what we're seeing happen is there's effort being put into addressing people who are currently on the street. There are services for some people who are in situations that are tough. The problem is that by focusing all of our response on where people are, we're forgetting about the value of helping prevent them from getting there in the first place. Right. And so it, it becomes this cycle. If you're not preventing people from becoming homeless in the first place, then you're always going to have to address the fact that people are homeless. Does that make sense? It does. And it's, you know, you're, you're hitting toward preventative measures, uh, mm -hmm as being something of a long-term solution. You, you say you favor long-term solutions over temporary fixes. So yep. certainly uh, prevention is, is key here. What are some of the other uh, kind of approaches, solutions that you might be looking at, um, you know, maybe in contrast that with what's already been tried uh, versus what you would like to do? Well, there, there are a couple things. We, uh, we do look at things like building, um, building multifamily affordable dwellings and such. But the truth is that doing that is actually really difficult because there isn't a really a return on investment. And so it's difficult to get um, developers involved. It's difficult to um, actually be able to make those projects happen. And in a lot of cases, actually, it's, it's also uh, blocked by land use, zoning being used as, um, as a weapon to prevent this kind of, this kind of um, building. But I think we can go further than just dealing with multi, you know, dwelling units. We can look at pallet shelters, like what they're doing in Everett right now, with um, the pallet shelter um, community that's opening behind the Everett Gospel Mission. That's going to provide some trans, you know, temporary housing for a number of the unsheltered people in our area to give them a space to be to keep their things safe, so they can make that next step, right? Because you need to have what you need to have your shelter. You need to have your food. You need to be warm. You need to be safe. Those are those are some of our basic needs to be able to move on to the next things. But I think we can we can do more than that. We can look at tiny home communities um, that are self sufficient and work to create more of those that will also you know look at affordable housing. We can look at um, some of our state laws. For example, um, you can't live in an RV for more than 180 days at a time. Mm. after which you have to skedaddle or even at a, at a campground type space, you, you have hundred and 180 days. You, you can move to somewhere else for the next 180 days. And there's also a period of time where you have to be even elsewhere, which sounds strange, but it's, it's all tied to state law that 
you know, prevents people from being able to do those things. We need to be able to suspend those laws. We need to, um, we need to be providing more space for people who are sleeping in their cars or who are sleeping in RVs in order for them to be able to exist with the resources that they need in order to be able to move forward. And I don't think we're really doing that. So th those are some of the, the bits. I'm going to end on a bit of a lighter question, uh, and that is about, it's, it's about the arts, uh, because you and I have a shared love of the arts, and you are a musician, you're an art docent with the Everett School District, and we know that the arts have been hit very hard by the pandemic um, all across the country, uh, particularly here in Washington, where I think we have uh, a very, very vibrant arts community. I'm wondering how things are, are coming back in the arts community in Snohomish. You know, I think it kind of depends on where you look and who you're looking at, because a lot of artists took a major hit during the pandemic. And so that is going to be really kind of it'll be really kind of telling how they how they all managed to come back, um, because those were in, in some cases, these are groups that did not necessarily um, meet the required guidelines to be able to access some of the relief that was sent our way. I think ultimately it, it, it kind of, we have to see a, a resurgence and into growth because the truth is that art, music, all, all these forms of expression are part of, they're part of what makes humans, I think, unique in, in some ways. It, it, it allows us to express, to love, to, to show pain, to, to share ourselves with others in a way that we can't in otherwise. So I'd like to see that that become more of a priority again, but also, you know, people recognize just how important it is. Thank you. Thank you for making that point. I say it all the time. <laughs> Always nice to somebody who uh, talked to somebody who, who uh, absolutely agrees with me singing from the same choir book. I, I will also mention before we go that you are just crushing it with endorsements. If people go on your website, they will see just, you know, just pages of, of endorsements. I'm wondering if you could just narrow down maybe just a couple that are particularly meaningful to you. Um, you know, when it comes to the officials who have endorsed me, everybody I've asked, I've asked for a different reason, but it's because... Um, it's because of the level of respect I have for them. So it's hard to be able to say like, I am really excited about the endorsement from Susan Del Bene because I mean, she's my Congresswoman. So that is super cool. It's um, big. Yeah. And so that's really exciting, but I don't want to ignore the fact that, you know, I'm also thrilled by endorsements from my state rep or um, from local city council members, because the truth is, when it comes down to it, these are the people that I need to work with when I'm elected, right? These are the people that I'm going to be engaging with and to have their respect and their faith means a lot to me. Um, and it demonstrates that I'm going to be in a position where I can really um, work on that change with the support of those around me. Um, and then when it comes to the in, in, um, organizations, I think, some some really kind of do stand out to me, like um, Washington conservation voters, because, you know, we can't go forward and continue smashing at the earth like we have been. We just can't do it. We, we've got to be making some serious changes. And so recognizing that they feel that I'm on the right track is, is super valuable. Also, um, Alliance for Gun Responsibility, because gun violence is a, you know, 
it is a health crisis and we need to be treating it as such and we don't. And so anything I can do to help, you know, advance that is something I'm going to do as well. Ultimately, like I said, when it comes down to endorsements, I'm really kind of, I'm really excited by every endorsement that I receive (laughs) because it's, to me, it's a spark of faith. Right. And, and so that's, what's important. It is a vote of confidence and uh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that when people see this, this interview, they listen to this interview, they're going to feel the same way about you. And so I will just ask what sort of help do you need with your campaign? How can people get involved? So one of the most regrettable things about campaigns is that they take a lot of money. Yep. So I'm always asking if you have the means and are able to please consider donating, but it's also really important to have, you know, boots on the ground. It's important to have people talking. It's important to start asking questions to those people who are already in office to find out where they stand. I would love to see more people question our county council members, particularly um, the ones that are being challenged this this time around by um, myself and one of your next guests, um, because I think you're going to see a stark difference where we come from and what we believe in. And that's going to be really important. Where can people go to learn more about your campaign? So I have a super simple website. It's brandy with a Y for council.com for the entire word. Um, So brandy for council.com is a great place to look. And um, I can be reached by emailing brandy at brandy for council.com. Perfect. I will have all that information in the show notes. Brandy Donaghy, it is so awesome to have you on the show at last. And I'm so excited about your, your campaign and just wish you the best of everything and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. And up next is Nicole Negaqui. She holds a degree in natural resource management, and she has worked extensively in restoration ecology, forestry, and urban forestry. And she is running for Snohomish County Council in District 1. Hello, Nicole. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you very well. I'm so glad that you could join us today. And, you know, I just want to kind of start with your experience because it is unique. I have never talked to an arborist before who is running for office. And you spent over 20 years doing this and also as a small business owner. Um, You're somebody who works very extensively on the environment. I'm wondering how all of that kind of added up to you deciding to to run for office. Um, Well, for a long time, I have seen developers just cut and pave over any and everything. So um, from the time I was young in our neighborhood, you know, first they paved our dirt road and then they, all the fields we used to ride our horses in, they built houses and parking lots and strip malls and stuff as far as the eye could see. And then, um, and then out here we have all these beautiful trees and rivers and green spaces and, and with all the new development that's coming in, um, I was very concerned or am very concerned that we're going to lose a lot of important canopy cover and habitat. Um, and so I'm doing my part to at least slow it down as much as possible, if not make it, at least make it done right, you know? So we're, we're still have some 
some other creatures on the planet. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I, I, I love everything you're saying, and I want to get into all of those things in depth in a second, but I feel like I want to kind of situate your district because uh, Brandy just gave us an idea of where Snohomish County is and a little bit about its demographics, its geography. You are running in District 1, which I believe is the largest district in Snohomish County. So maybe tell us a little about that specifically, where it is and, and kind of what the demographics are there. Yeah, so it's north of Lake Stevens all the way to the county line and then um, from the water, the west coast to basically east of Darrington. So it's the largest geographical area, that's for sure. Uh, but we're pretty spread out. A lot of, lot of country, a lot of land, a lot of farms, um, and which is my neck of the woods. You know, I've always been a country girl. I still have horses and stuff and, and ride and swim in the rivers you know that's that's why i'm out here um it's very rural um very red <laughs> mm. um and which is okay because i relate to you know all these people just fine i live with a trump supporter <laughs> um <laughs> really <laughs> I, I do what uh, is my, that like wow my kid's dad um it's it's okay as we can't really talk poli politics or policy uh just because there's it's it's hard. He doesn't really know facts about what he's saying, and so <laughs> you know, if I ask him to back something up, there's just like he just gets louder saying whatever he was saying. <laughs> well, <laughs> I so then I wonder. I wonder, like, does that inform your ability to kind of reach across and reach some of these independent voters, and maybe even the people who kind of lean Republican but aren't full Trumpers? Does, does yeah. it give you kind of the ability to speak that language a little bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally understand the concerns. You know. Um, I, I hear the, the, the gripes and the complaints, um, and some are legitimate, you know, some are, some are misplaced. Like the reason behind it is misplaced, but, um, the, the concerns are legitimate, you know, taxes keep going up. Um, and I do feel the middle class is overtaxed. I don't think we need to keep taxing the middle class more and more. Um, and, and inflation, again, I think that's misplaced, but you know, it's stuff that all of us are really concerned about. Um, he's, so he's Indian, so native. Um, and so I know he cares about the environment, but he's, but, and I think we all do, but how to best go about uh, protecting it and keeping it intact is another, you know, thing, because they want to sell it all out to make money. You know, it's all about the economy. And it's like, right. we know we care about the rivers, but we can't just let the developers, you know, wipe out every tree down to the banks and, and just keep going, you know, so, it, um, but it's good for the economy at the same time, <laughs> or so well, they say. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, so that gets into a very fundamental question, and I want to ask you about this in your capacity as somebody who has worked in urban forestry, which I had to look up, and it's fascinating. So you seem uniquely uh, kind of situated to answer this question. How do you strike that balance between the need for, say, growth, the need for uh, housing? You know, it, it, Snohomish County is one of the fastest growing counties uh, in the state, and also, you know, the commitment that we have made to protect the environment. I mean, really just, uh, I would just kind of ask you to maybe paint with sort of broad strokes here and talk about how you frame that problem in your mind. Um, we are growing really fast, and I think uh, keeping the urban boundary growth in, intact and then enforcing the rules that we already have around that. Uh, we've got a lot of like native growth protection areas that are not being protected, so people go in there, they buy the land, and they cut down the trees because they're my trees, you know, anyway, so they mm -hmm. don't feel like they have to. But if we re enforce those laws, we would 
retain a lot of canopy that's already there. Yeah, so... So it's an enforcement issue is, is what you're saying. So the laws are, are ultimately there, but where maybe current leadership is coming up short is enforcement is what you're saying. Am I getting that? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's part of, that's a, a big part of it, I think, right now. Um, we keep annexing more area, you know, so that the town has gotten this big and we can grow there. And then so we'll just go out and annex the next, you know, 100 acres over or north or south or whatever, and then and then change the zoning. And, and there we have another, you know, so if we concentrate our growth within the, the boundaries of what we already have, um, and build up that infrastructure and and uh, and then every time we have to cut down trees, we have to either do what we can to retain the trees that are already there and build around them at least big significant trees and then plant also trees that are going to get big. You know, they plant back these little, you know, 10 foot shrub trees that are, you know, they provide they're better than nothing. But, you know, it'd be nice to have, you know, a 100 foot oak or, a, you know, a 80 foot maple shading our parking lots. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what's going to keep us cool. You know, that's what keeps us cool and moist. And um, well, yes, so talk like... about that connection too, because, you know, when, when you and I were preparing for our, our conversation, you as an arborist kind of went into a little bit of detail in, in ways that I hadn't heard before about the connection. Cause we just came off a devastating heat wave about yeah. this connection between tree removal and rising temperatures. Can you just like unpack that a little bit in, in, in some, some more granular ways? Yeah, um, just a little bit. <laughs> um, so, so if you imagine we've had Western Washington was a forested wetland, basically. We've removed almost 80% of that. Don't quote me on that, because it's but it's a lot. Um, it's a lot, though, yeah, okay. Yeah, and then heat, also asphalt and concrete, they radiate the heat at like 14 degrees hotter than just ground or if the ground was shaded. So between the removal of the canopy, um, which cools the, the earth, it cools the ground, and then also trees transpire water. They um they just yeah, and then they provide shade. They breathe, you know, they they filter the, the air. So everything around us is cleaner and cooler if we have more trees. And so if we remove those, we are just left baking in the sun, which is pretty much what we've done for and then it creates this cycle whereby when you're left baking in the sun, there's less precipitation, the right. trees get drier, they are more uh, susceptible to wildfires and things like that, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah. um, you know, all of this is kind of interconnected, right? So we talked about housing a little bit, and you have called for uh, what you, you say is a creative approach to the affordable housing issue. I wonder if you could talk just about a few of the solutions that you would like to explore on the council. Um, well, I know it's similar to things I'm sure that probably Brandy's talked about, like the ADUs. Um, it's accessory dwelling units. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Where they're, they're small. <laughs> um, just it, they allow for a lot more people um, in in a concentrated area. So we're not sprawling all over the, the open forest. So it allows us to stay within the urban growth boundaries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an intractable problem. It touches every part of the state, as does the issue of homelessness. And you, know, you talk about favoring a compassionate uh, approach to drug addiction and homelessness. And broadly speaking, I guess I'll just ask you two questions about this. How is the issue being dealt with right now? And how would you like to change the approach? Um, well, right now, apparently they have the so if someone's arrested for homelessness, they have an option or drug, um, like being drugged out on the street or whatever. Um, they have the option to sign up for services 
and then they can go through their treatment program or they can go to jail uh, for 24 hours and then they're let back out. Um, so I don't see jail as a really viable financially or reasonable alternative how to treat people. And so I would rather see them put in a, a home, you know, take or take into some safe place where they can receive the services that they need, uh, counseling, um, a, you know, safe place to be so they're not out on the street. And then, um, yeah, not just keep cycling. I think it would reduce the cost. I know jail is very expensive. Um, and then to keep cycling them through and, and not solving the problem. And I think if they get the services they need, whether it's because some people are on the streets for a different reason, whether it's their, their home life is bad, they have, yeah, uh, mental um, issues or whatever. So, and then see to the root cause as opposed to just putting them in jail and putting them back out. And then just kind of going backwards in the equation and when the timeline timeline rather a little bit and talking about the police response, you also favor funding the police to explore different approaches to the way that they deal yeah. with responses to, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction calls, yeah. homelessness calls, mental health calls, things like that. What are some of the ways that you would like to see as a council member, uh, the the police and or the uh, the county sheriff start to respond to uh, yeah. these that's great. Yeah. If they um, send out a, a counselor, a drug counselor or, a, you know, some sort of counselor. I And the reason why I remember sitting up and I was up outside of Burlington uh, one day and um, and there was a gal on the ground, obviously distraught, you know, having an, a moment. But she wasn't harm, harmful. She didn't have any weapons. She wasn't going after anybody. But there were four armed officers standing around her, you know, with their hands on their hips and one on the radio for a good half an hour. So I feel like it's not just a waste of their time um, if they could have someone come out, you know, trained to deal with mental health crises um, or drug problems as opposed to, you know, officers that should be out fighting crime <laughs> and dealing with, right. you know, true criminals. And and not just, you know, it, I think it'll, it'll free them up um, mentally and they might be more satisfied with their jobs even i mean possibly if they didn't have to deal with everything that everybody ever every issue that everybody ever had <laughs> it is anecdotal but i hear that i hear that you know for the police officers law enforcement officers will say that they don't necessarily want to be dealing with things like that and so this would free them up to do the kind of work that they want to do uh so before i let you know let you go um i will just note that there are uh, very very motivated oh, very generous people who uh generous with their time uh who like to help out with campaigns i imagine people getting excited uh, by what they're hearing from you um how can people help what do you need help with um well there's always funding we are always in need of uh, help getting the word out to people so i just had flyers made i just picked up my signs um, and we're doing a mailer. Um, I need the first vote through the the primary because I have a primary opponent that's not really running a campaign. And I know if we want to beat Nate, we have to run a campaign. Um, and and that's my passion. I'm going to see it through to the end. Like there's no stopping for me. So vote uh, in the primary and um, and donate, donate, donate because I can't do it by myself. <laughs> And where can people go to learn more? Uh, my website is nicole4snowco.com. 
and F O R, not F O U R, or the number. F-O-R. Gotcha. F-O-R. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> F-O-R. Okay. And those are my horses on there. They're not someone else's. <laughs> they're the your my horses on the on the website. They oh, kind of look like they're just a background thing, but those are that's my my girl and my boy. <laughs> I had no idea. I on it. Yeah. They're so beautiful. I thought, is this stock footage? Wow. No, it's not. That that's it. my girl. <laughs> Well, Nicole Nagakui, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. And that is it for today. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.